Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme by Simon Price this morning. Um, Simon is a director at Skylight Media Limited, a web design, web development, systems integration and internet marketing company which supports over 200 clients. Uh, Simon, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Good morning, you're welcome. Yes, thank you, Scott. Yeah, really appreciate you taking the time to come onto the air, Simon, for sure. Um, and the whole reason we're here is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering that I'm sure you'll agree today's business leaders are going through one of the greatest challenges of our time in the shape of the COVID-19 pandemic, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent this situation has affected you and your business operations. Well, the extent it's affected us has been—it's uh, been quite variable. It's been interesting, and it's, uh, it's surprised us. Um, uh, the, the 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 initial the initial lockdown period, uh, say the first six weeks, um, there was a—it was as if the, the music had stopped for clients of ours, and a lot of these clients are business to business customers. Um, uh, we have other clients who are business to consumer customers, and what was occurring was a lot of our a lot of our Business to consumer customers were uh, were experiencing um, it surges in business, and our business to business customers who were selling to trade to 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 the retailers uh, were finding that uh, their 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 own supply chain had ground to a halt. So there was a, there was a kind of a dearth of contact at that point, and so we we had a period of reflection, which was great. We had, uh, or rather, I had a period of reflection um, as my team continued to work. We did some furlough. Um, but actually, what's come out of this is that beyond the six-week point, our business has increased dramatically, and this is because of people's uh, our clients and fresh clients. We've had a huge surge in new business, where um, where we are now being um, viewed as their means to be able to attach, attract themselves to uh, to an, an audience, a new audience, or better, to an existing audience, and so so. It's been quite dramatic for us in, in that we've seen an increase in in the right kind of business for us, um, where we're having a lot healthier a lot healthier project scale sizing um, and and also cost. Not because we've taken any advantage of that, but people come to us off the back of our reputation and the majority of it through referral. And what we what we found in that is that uh, we've had a We've had a, a surge in those inquiries and people who talked to other people who recommended us, um, or they found us locally uh, through the search engines, um, and it's put us in a it's put us in a position where we're actually even healthier than we were last year. So it's been quite a surprise, um, a very pleasant surprise. Mm. And I can imagine that you've taken some other positives away from this experience in that. The crisis management experience will almost have gal- galvanised the company and really taught you one or two things about not just yourself but also those around you as well. Oh yes, that's right. Um, what's what has been what's been fascinating for us is that uh, is that um, the requirement to um, to remote work um, was something that we were already on board with, and last year we set that up, um, but we haven't we haven't adopted a one hundred percent remote working. Um, uh, if you like, a protocol, 
we've started the ball rolling four years ago and then finally, finally agreed to it all last year. Mm. Um, with knowing that there were advantages. Um, and what that's done is it's, it's actually allowed us um, to become a lot more efficient. So if you, if you like, the epiphany for us over this period is the efficiency that has been created through, through our, um, our remote working. I, I am actually now back in the office um, alone um, because it made sense to me to come back in and actually do the commute every day. I, I like that. It helps me get more mentally prepared for, for, for the working day. But the, the rest of the team are all working from home. And, um, and if anything, uh, they have more time to consider to consider projects and have less less interruptions. They have more opportunity to, to focus. And that, that, uh, and that intellect, lack of intellectual interruptions is, uh, is a really important aspect to, 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 to their working day. So I think over, overall, it's, it's been quite a dramatic, um, a dramatic improvement all around. For a lot of people during this time, that experience of working remotely and then having to lead from a distance has essentially suddenly come upon them. But for yourself, whereas you've sort of gradually moved into it over the years, um, I suppose it's been a lot easier for you during this time to just continue operating and it's been more of a sort of seamless transition. Yes, completely seamless. Yeah, yeah. And it has made us ref- it has made us reflect and it's made us consider the future is the, fu- is the future being office based or is the future being uh, remote based mm. um, do increasingly use um, freelancers and actually that that freelance aspect does you know those those people are all remote anyway but uh, but I do believe there is still a requirement for us to have a physical location right smack in the heart of Nottingham which is where we are um actually affords us a pin in the map. It affords us the ability to welcome our own clients who come in. I've got people coming in tomorrow and Friday, for example. Um, we're obeying the, 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 the distance and social distancing aspect. But actually, um, we, we do know of clients who are cutting down. They're, they're, re- they're reducing their, their square footage. They're, they're, taking, um, they're taking desks and chairs out and actually make, making themselves a little bit more streamlined in that process. So I... I kind of wonder what's going to happen off the back of that. But as far as we're concerned, we're going to re- retain the, uh, the office space. And our landlord was very, very generous <laughs> with this as well, which was, which was, um, which was most welcome. That's certainly um, a positive uh, thing to uh, to hear for sure, because um, I understand there are a lot of businesses starting to worry about that sort of thing uh, going into the uh, the next few months as government support starts to uh, to wind down in particular. Um, just taking yeah. a, a bit of a backtrack, um, Simon, um, of course, you've been in business for quite a long time now, but in your earlier career, you were involved in a four-year stint with the Royal Navy, I think I'm right in saying, weren't you? Yeah. Um, so what I'm interested in from that point of view is, are there any elements of leadership that you learned from that sort of military career that you've taken into your sort of business leadership style in the civilian world? That's a very good question, Scott. Um, yes, uh, that, has ha- that has helped. Um, although maybe not in so much of a, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a direct um, uh, assistant to me, that, that experience. But um you know, the Navy, a military career, it was all about hierarchy and uh, and and looking at uh, looking at layers of, of authority. Um, uh, the, the, the what I did is I chose to flatten my hierarchy completely, um, and I actually lead I actually lead my my team um, by inspiring them rather than through command. So there's a command structure in a in in, in, a, in a in a military environment because there has to be. But from my perspective, I wanted to. Through actually through 
a lot of very bad managers that I worked under as, as I went through my career once I'd left the Navy, I took really the route. Well, I could either go through a command structure or I could go through or through um, uh, something akin to that because the civilian the civilian aspect of management structures is, is nowhere near as big. Uh, but um, but I, I felt my leadership style favoured bringing people together on a level and actually being being responsible to each other, um, knowing that there was someone keeping their eye, their eye on the horizon or three horizon approach, but actually having having um, experience uh, that they could draw on from from bad management in the past, and to avoid that bad bad, bad management, um, uh, if you like, if, if you like going forward into the future. So actually, we're on a very uh, very dem- democratic. Um, um, uh, office environment here or within the company, where I'm I'm reliant upon extremely good people to advise me on the best route to achieve um, the answer to a to a particular business problem for a client or a technical problem, um, and ultimately I then make the make the decision as to the right way to go. But the most important thing for me is to actually gather gather the right information in order to feed that into my team for them to, to, to provide me with the information back. And I'm very thorough. But the one thing that has helped is, is from my engineering background in the Navy is actually my technical grasp of a, of a problem and actually look at uh, each and every situation with a client or a project as a problem-solving exercise. Um, I know we, we avoid the word problem these days and we come up with a, with, with the uh, euphemism issue, but actually problem-solving is at the heart of it and actually that's, that's where I get my kick and that's where I get my enjoyment uh, on a day-to-day basis with clients. So if we, if we go you know, take, take that back to, to my, my, my naval career, which was only fairly short, um, uh, what I took away from that was, was actually that, uh, that engineering knowledge and, and, and the brain, the brain um, capacity, if you like, to be able to uh, take, a, take a circumspect view and, uh, and, and a portion the right, uh, the right um, answer to, to a situation. So that's, that's what we've seen with me. And during this time as well, um, of course, it's become very clear that leaders have become very self-aware of their responsibilities. So many people through the uncertainty of COVID-19 have been looking to leaders for a little bit of direction, a little bit of inspiration um, among all of the uncertainty. But when you are the person at the uh, the top of the tree running the uh, the business, when you need a little bit of inspiration for yourself, where is it that you tend to go looking for it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, actually, my inspiration comes from study. Um, um, I do, I do read. I do read. I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, but, uh, but I'm actually um, going through um, the dissertation process of an MBA, and that that whole process actually has allowed me over the last uh, two years to reflect to reflect on my own business, my own business's position within its uh, within within its. Um, own, um, own uh, space within within Nottingham, but of course across the UK. And when we serve the the UK, I have to keep an open mind um, on on uh, perspective. I have to have to perspective. I have to keep an open mind on where we are with our competitors, which uh, whether, whether we're operating in a, a red ocean, <laughs> which is coming straight out of MBA handbook, um, or, or into a blue ocean. And what we're finding is we've got a combination of those two. Uh, where we're actually sometimes we're fighting against our competitors and sometimes we're working with our competitors. And actually what, what has been great is there's been a, this reflection that I've, I've had has given me the opportunity over the last two years, in, including what's happening now, 
actually just be a little bit more pragmatic about uh, about how I how I operate the business, um, how we operate with clients. We've got a very grown up attitude, a very mature and responsible attitude, which is to which is just to, uh, to to do the right thing. Now, this isn't necessarily supposed to be a plug for, for, for my business, but what it is, it's 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 a growing up that has to has to occur. And I think what's happened what's happened over the last few months has made a lot of business leaders. Uh, grow up quite quickly. Mm. Um, there's no room, I think, for an ego-centric business. A business should really be open. It should be honest with itself, and should actually um, should actually listen listen to and respond to feedback constantly, and be prepared to reinvent itself if necessary. Just try to be a little bit more flexible, and just be um, uh, and just think of the client first and foremost. And having reflected on the uh, the past um, over the course of this discussion, I think it's only right, Simon, that we talk about the future as well, just before we do wrap things up on uh, today's programme. Um, we know that over the next year, we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and a new way of working, the new normal that everybody's talking about. But in a year's time, where is it that you see Skylight Media being and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over this next year? I think... Um... If, if anything, um, the the operational standard that we've got right now, I think, will hold fast. And I don't I don't see that unless something else happens, that things are going to wander far off where we are at the moment. I guess, if anything, um, some of our um, awareness may have may have may have. Shifted slightly. We we were we've been well known at uh, attending various trade shows to go and see clients operating their in their field, and because there's been a, a, because those trade shows haven't taken place this, this year, it's a little harder to try and get out to those people. So I would hope that once restrictions lift, that we may actually be able to open those up again um, and actually go and make those those physical. Uh, forays um, in, in, into those, um, those those trade arenas, but I, I I see that as we have become a little bit more visible. I mean, I know we've been going for nearly eighteen years now, but our visibility is quite high. And I I would hope that if anything, how we treated people over this period, how we've looked after them, will reflect much better on us. Either you know, uh, and, and hopefully give us a lot more a lot more referral business if anything so i think i'm, I'm hoping that um when you when you when you make these decisions as a leader to try and to try and focus on the client try and do the right thing you're hoping that people will will, will um reflect on that and actually um and actually feel a little bit more confident about referring you on and mm. and really that's 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 how i always operated this business so i don't see that changing at all but I'm, I'm just hoping that uh, that we, we can stand fast with how we operate right now, which is incredibly efficient. Um, uh, if, 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 uh, we will hopefully be able to reap some of the rewards of that, which is then the increased amount of uh, awareness to our customers and um, referring back to us even more. And I certainly wish you every success um, on that side of things, Simon. And I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the show with us just to see how some of these plans are coming to fruition. 
Yes, thank you. I've very much enjoyed that. Yes, thank you. I'd welcome that myself. It's been a real pleasure having you joining us on the today's show. And most importantly, Simon, do take care and do stay safe in the meantime with all still going on until hopefully we do touch base again. Yes, thank you. I was speaking on today's programme to Simon Price, director at Skylight Media. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. He held a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, and as well as serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, he was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and all of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can, Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you, and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods, and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere, 
uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent 
professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.